This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello, and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Deborah Fitzgerald, writer and editor for The Pulse. How's it going, Deb? Great, Andrew. How am I supposed to say, how are you? Well, that's polite, generally. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was going to step on your next move. No, so I, I, I don't have, this, listeners of the podcast will, will probably have guessed at this point that I, I don't have a grand plan for the episodes. Okay. And I, I just kind of wing it. I don't even know what we're going to talk well, about Well, I just today. remember that one time when I said something at the end of the podcast, when you were signing us out, and you had this 30 second pause because I stepped on it. Well, you so, broke my brain. I didn't, no yes. one has ever interrupted me when well, I, I was wanna, doing my spiel. I, I didn't want to break your brain at the beginning as opposed to the end when it doesn't really matter. Well, I think uh, that you you did just that. Actually. Okay. All right. uh, we have some stuff to talk about this week. Uh, some stuff that uh, I find pretty interesting. One of the, the first things that when I saw this headline, I immediately went into panic mode uh, because Sturgeon Bay is deactivating their tornado sirens. And Deb, I live in Sturgeon Bay. What am I going to do? Oh, well, you don't technically live in Sturgeon Bay, do you? I probably live close enough to hear them at least. Yeah, you may. But do you know what to do when they go off? Uh, run and hide. Right. Okay. Um, have you heard them ever? Nope. Okay. <laughs> now, I think that, you know, I grew up in Minnesota. Not a lot of tornadoes in Minnesota either. So my... Except um, for recently. Yeah, a lot, they're coming back in Minnesota. Well, then I'm glad that I moved I actually over got here. a photo of one while I was out there uh, working. My, my experience with tornado sirens is that they fire at the beginning of every month uh, and they make my dogs howl, which mm-hmm. was always fun to hear. Mm-hmm. But other than that, no purpose for them, especially yeah. nowadays. And I think that that's kind of what Sturgeon Bay was seeing as well. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. And because uh, they are tested once a month, as you said, but they haven't gone off for a very long time to alert people to a tornado. I think the last time that a tornado touched ground near Sturgeon Bay was a level two tornado at Sand Bay in 1985. So So that was the last time the tornado sirens fired in earnest. Correct. And they're 24 years old, and they are going to require some extensive maintenance because they're not really used uh, very often. People don't even really know what to do once they go off. And... There are alerts that you can get on your phone. I mean, there's apps for weather, and they were just becoming obsolete. And so do you put $24,000 per tornado siren maintenance into them, you know, to maintain an obsolete technology? Probably not. Right, and and $25,000 times the six tornado sirens that they are is a pretty considerable amount of money. Exactly. And without them, that can go into some other stuff too. Right, so they did this gradually. So they announced that they were going to be doing this last October, and they they deactivated them at that time. So it, it actually has been a while since they've So been I tested. have been living unprotected <laughs> in Sturgeon Bay since last year. You have you have, Andrew. I, I know I hate to tell you that, but you have. Oh, and man. yes, so now that they've lived without them for a while and it's Severe Weather Awareness Week coming up. And so it was a good time to 
uh, well, it wasn't a good time to take them down. Yeah, when that's kind of funny. They're like, hey, it's Severe Weather Awareness Week, <laughs> and we just wanted to let you all know right. uh, that there's no safety net anymore. <laughs> it's actually the awareness part of that that is appropriate. Please be aware right. that uh, if there's a tornado, yes. uh, you need to see it because right. you won't hear anything beforehand. <laughs> so uh, they are raising awareness that, that they're taking them down, but they've really been decommissioned for a while now. Right, and I'm joking a lot, but at the same time, it's like, I, I don't think a tornado siren, especially in a place like this, is necessary in mm-hmm. any way. I'd be interested to hear like how useful they are in places where tornadoes are more frequent, mm-hmm. uh, if people are using those as their primary like alert or if severe weather alerts on their phone have, have preempted that. I wonder what sure. comes out first, basically, if, if you're going to get an alert on your phone before the, the siren goes off or, you know, or how it goes in that way. Or maybe in more rural areas where mm. there's less internet access or things like that. But I can't imagine that people aren't getting weather alerts on their phones in most areas. Sure. So. And then, you know, people are uh, largely inside. Uh, we're more of an indoor society than we are outdoor Except for the past year, of course, when people uh, rediscovered the outdoors. And the tornado sirens were not designed to be heard inside. They were designed to be heard outside. So to protect you, uh, to alert you to get inside if a tornado sighting had occurred. And it did just occur to me that the last time a tornado touched down in Sturgeon Bay, I'm not quite certain if... That was the last time the siren sounded to alert people that there could be a tornado. Right. Yeah, that's a a good distinction to make. Okay. Um, You also mentioned that, you know, sirens weren't necessarily designed to be heard inside, but what's the closest you've ever lived to a tornado siren? I've worked pretty close to a tornado siren, but I have not lived close to one. And in fact, where I lived prior to this, it was tornado country, really. And uh, there was a tornado siren across the river. It was a really rural area, so it was about a quarter mile away. So I did actually hear that uh, quite a number of times over the past decade. Yeah, my childhood home growing up had a tornado siren one door down from from where I live. So every month when the tornado siren would do its test, uh, I definitely heard it Mm -hmm. inside my house. Mm -hmm. It was the only thing I could hear. Um, So I'm pretty familiar with them. Uh, but I have to imagine that they stopped sounding when I was, you know, a teenager as well. Because this is a childhood yeah. memory that I have. Not, oh, interesting. Not like one from my adolescence. So uh, who knows if that tornado siren has been active I, back in my hometown. Right. And I think that it was probably, you grew up in the suburbs of Minneapolis, is that? I grew up about 45 minutes north of Minneapolis. Okay. So not really the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of rural. And the rural area that I just came from, I mean, it, it was an ag area. So, you know... Agricultural producers were out in the fields. I mean, there were a lot more people, you know, outside, but I don't even know if they would have heard them. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. I I have fond memories of hanging out with my friends underneath the tornado siren and screaming as loud as we could to hear if we could hear each other. Oh, interesting. And we often could not. Ah, that sounds like a really fun thing to do. Yeah. Like what Minnesota kids do. That is what we do for fun. (laughs) Stand under the siren and scream at each other. There you go. So another piece that you wrote this week was about uh, worker shortages, right, in manufacturing. Yes. Walk me through that. Well, I think we all know uh, the more visible shortages that occur up here, you know, have to do with the hospitality industry. And certainly 
there are shortages uh, across the board. I'm going to actually be talking with um, the Door County Economic Development Corporation in a couple of weeks on the podcast about what's what's happening on the labor front for all sectors uh, within Door County. But this particular story has to do with uh, the manufacturing sector because that one's more invisible to us. They're not just in the industrial park. There are about 62 manufacturers uh, across Door County. And there are, you know, a lot of them are concentrated there. But it's kind of out of the way. You don't really see them. So, you know, it's not something that is is as visible as hotels or restaurants or bars that right. you know, need employees. Yeah, we tend to focus a lot on the tourism industry, sure. but the the industrial industry, the manufacturing and, and, and that sort of thing is a huge part of it. And and one thing that I really enjoy in my conversations with Kelsey Fox at DCEDC mm-hmm. is about how like we interact with the manufacturing section of the economy down here pretty much every day and don't even know it. So mm-hmm. there's devices that we use uh, or that the hospital uses uh, that uses parts that were machined right here in Door County. And that's a national thing. Um, so in the same way that we hang our hat on cherries and hospitality, there, we do also have a really thriving industrial area and, and they're doing incredible stuff down there too. We just, you know, it's not something that we talk about as a more tourism focused. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, the manufacturing sector is the single largest contributor to gross regional product in Door County. Right. So it's, it's, it's no small you know, factor. And it's interesting that you said, you know, things that uh, you use. Chris Moore, who is the CEO and president and owner of, of New Industries, he was talking about how what they do, what they manufacture, um, it, there are parts in probably everything that you see and use every day that they have supplied to some of their customers who are them making the products that you use every day. You know, from appliances and all of your small mechanicals, and they have a broad array of industries uh, who are their customers. So it's a huge industry, and they have a difficult time, like everybody in that industry sector, in attracting younger people to come into production. Right. And there, there are differences in terms of why uh, like manufacturing might struggle to attract employees, especially in Door County, compared to, say, uh, a hotel or a restaurant. Sure. I think if you've been coming to Door County over the last couple of years or if you live here and you walk through town, you're going to see help wanted signs in most of the windows. And that's just been something that we've been dealing with for a while. Uh, and I, we've talked on the podcast a couple of times about why the tourism industry faces those types of hiccups. But why specifically manufacturing and what are some of the more specific issues or challenges that they have? Sure. A lot of them are the same. Housing costs, the availability of child care, the lack of availability of child care, the high cost of housing and the shortage of housing. So those are things that are, you know, pretty much the same. There's also in the manufacturing companies, these are, you know, full-time jobs and the people who have held them for a long time are now aging out. So the baby boomers are now leaving the workforce. And we knew that that was going to happen. And it's been happening for a long time. But they're really feeling that now because then those jobs are not being backfilled by younger people who don't see working for a manufacturer as, you know, a viable career choice. There are a couple reasons for that. 
Uh, one of them is that we do kind of funnel students into the college career track, the four-year, you got to get a four-year college degree or you're never going to be successful. That has been going on for decades as well. So not everybody goes to college, but these other choices, these other alternatives need to be communicated to students um, so that they understand that they're out there. Yeah, I definitely was a person who grew up thinking that, like, I had to go to college. Yeah. Like, it was just something that people As was did. I. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though my parents didn't go to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that I guess it's just a generational thing where it's like that was instilled in us. And when I got through college, uh, I, I slowly came to realize that, like, college is not for everybody. And that's not to say that, like, some kids, you know, shouldn't go to college because they're not something, mm-hmm. right? But it, mm-hmm. it, And there shouldn't be a stigma with not going to college. But there should be other paths for people rather than a traditional four-year degree. Yes. Uh, technical college, uh, going into trades, those types of things I think should be equally as emphasized as going to a four-year degree for something like that. Right. And this is coming from somebody who got a theater degree, so, I mean, what do I know? <laughs> or, but, yeah, yeah, and somebody who was an English undergrad and then got a graduate degree in creative writing. So yeah. I totally understand that. But the you brought up an interesting point, and I think, and personally, I think that that is one of the biggest factors that we have to eliminate, and that is the stigma. So if you don't go to college, then it is almost viewed like, you know, you, there's something wrong with you. So that part of it, I think needs to, and that's a harder thing to get at, right? I mean, you can, you can show students that there are other paths, but you know, if that psychological stigma is still there, and I say it's psychological because it's not necessarily a reality. You can go into one of these jobs and make really good money, you know, after a number of years and after a number of years of training which it would take anyway if you were going to college and coming out and using that degree, which nobody does. And I think the statistic is something like 40% of college graduates actually use what they went to college for. Right. And the remaining percent uh, is probably just trying to fit what they went to college for into the box of whatever they're doing now. Precisely. Like I like to say my theater degree was actually very important because now I write about theater for the pulse. <laughs> so, but. And my writing degrees were very important because now, you know, I'm a reporter and I have been for a long time. Yeah, so. but yours fits a little bit more closely it, than mine does. Well, creative writing, I don't know. That's kind of a stretch. <laughs> Reporting is is the opposite. But yes, you get to use a lot of conventions that you used in creative writing, um, especially for the longer form stories, uh, mm. the, the narrative structures. So I definitely do get to use some of those skills. Well, and I find it interesting specifically with this story because, you know, you, you think that like students want to go to a, a four-year university or they want to major in something like technology, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's a huge sector right yeah. now. Uh, but this is technology. Manufacturing is. is very, it's very much transformed into something that is very uh, computerized. There's a lot of mechanical parts here. There's robotics involved in this. So you would think that this would be uh, something that people would want to get into if if, you know, their goal is to go for computer science or something like that. There should be those those connective pathways. Right. And, and that is a, a really good point because new, for example, is a CNC machine manufacturer, and that means computer numerical control. So there are a lot of um, there's there's a lot of computer technology, obviously, that is required to be able to do these things. And so for, for young people who are drawn to that field, this is, 
this is something that they would be doing as part of the machine manufacturing field. Another thing, because of the human shortage, these machines are becoming increasingly automated so that they are using more robotics. They're having machines brought in, not, not just new, but companies across the country. So as the labor shortage increases, then automation increases as well. Therefore, there are fewer human jobs that are available, but they need to do that in order to be able to keep up with production. Right. So I, I think that that's maybe a bit of uh, fear mongering, right? So if you're afraid that the singularity is approaching and robots are going to take over society, then you got to get a job in manufacturing <laughs> yeah, in order to, to, there you go. to stop that. Well, some manufacturers, you know, are going toward that zero sum. I mean, that they don't need to have uh, human workers. But again, in talking with Chris Moore at New Industries, he said that, you know, even though they are uh, amping up the robotics in uh, some of their machines, that that won't ever replace humans entirely in their particular uh, company. Right. I mean, the the robotics definitely help in certain things. I think about like uh, manufacturers who are creating parts for pacemakers, right? Those are incredibly small pieces, uh, so much so that they're kind of impossible to do by hand. Uh, but you need you need somebody making the designs. You need somebody running the machines. Machines need maintenance, all those types of things. So while they are automating things, I don't think that they're necessarily cutting out jobs the way you might think they are. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, yes. Uh, they are definitely cutting into jobs, but not cutting out entirely. Right. But jobs that aren't aren't being filled. Right. And that's that's the bigger issue here. Yes. Um, anything else that's interesting for people to know about this particular story? No, I think that I think we pretty much covered it. Cool. <laughs> so a couple more things that I want to talk about before we wrap up. Uh, and I want to talk about stuff that I've been writing. Well, let me segue you into that. All right. Go for it. Do your best. Yeah. What I think is really uh, something unique that you have brought to the A&E section since you started is that you're telling the stories of these people that we wouldn't ever normally see or hear about. And these are all of the people that enable our theater productions to be brought to the stage to audiences. So right. I've learned so much just in uh, reading your pieces that I'm sure that the our readers have as well. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I, I've gotten a lot of great feedback for this series on technical artists and people who work backstage. But I, I'm, I'm more working as a conduit to tell these great stories, mm -hmm. right? So I don't want to take too much credit uh, for, for telling these stories because I think they're stories that should be told, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I've gotten to talk to so many cool people, uh, artists, designers, technicians, uh, whose work you see and are familiar with. I mm. mean, you're, you're experiencing them in their fullest capacity when you go see a show at Peninsula Players, Northern Sky, Third Avenue Playhouse, Door Shakespeare, any of the theaters up here. But unless you know what you're looking at uh, or have some sort of background in theater, a lot of times they're fading into the background as they should. Mm -hmm. Or you just, you know, you don't talk about them unless something goes wrong. Uh, I talked to Kyle Pingle at Peninsula Players and he said that uh, as a costume designer, the only time like his name is on people's lips is when something goes wrong. If, mm -hmm. if a wig doesn't look right or if a costume malfunctions or something like that. And I've heard that sentiment repeated over and over again in the different people that I've talked to in mm -hmm. that if you work backstage as a designer or a set constructor or a property manager or something like that, uh, people don't notice 
your work unless something bad happens, mm-hmm. right? If a cue doesn't go off at the same time, if the blackout doesn't go uh, at the same time, then people will notice that something bad happened. Sure, yep. Um, and, and that's because the work that's being done backstage is meant to amplify what's happening on stage. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, oftentimes it just kind of lends itself to supporting the actors and what they're doing. Which so, it should do, right? Right. But, but we get to see what is happening. It's kind of like... Uh, when you read a poem, all right? So just this a little aside, just reading a poem, you can just enjoy the poem. Or when you explicate the poem, then you get to see what is at work to make it a great poem. You can do the same thing for any piece of writing. So this is kind of what I see happening in your pieces. We get to explicate the production and bring all of these people in. You know, that we, and so now when I go, like if I look at the lighting, your latest, one of your latest pieces was on the lighting of Jimmy Ballesteri. Yep. Uh, and that's what I wanted to talk about today because I, I really enjoyed hearing about him. He uh, got an internship through Northern Sky uh, and he's done lighting design there. Um, and what I found so fascinating about him is he kind of introduced himself by saying that he has worked in Door County, right? Both in theaters, but also at Wild Tomato. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says that while he's not in Door County right now, he loves Door County and he misses it and that kind of thing. But as we got to talking, he told me that his first theatrical experience ever, the first show that he can remember seeing was actually at American Folklore Theater, which is now Northern Sky. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of this beautiful moment that it's like, he, he remembers being a child sitting next to his, his little sister who was a toddler and seeing these great shows in the park. And then fast forward, you know, 17 years, and all of a sudden he's working on that same stage. Sure, right? that he's, is pretty cool. Yeah, and, and seeing those ties are, are so cool. Hearing these people's stories and seeing uh, what is unique about them, but also some of the different through lines that they have too. Uh, a lot of people that I've talked to got into theater in school, high school, middle school, wanted to be on stage, maybe went to college to uh, get a performance degree, and then for some reason or another found themselves backstage and and found that that's where they belonged. Mm-hmm. And that's what really felt good. Uh, I've talked to people who have said that like, there's more work backstage, and, and that's true. If you're mm. an actor, you're auditioning, and you are getting rejected for the majority of the pieces that you're auditioning <laughs> for. Like, that's going to be fun. Yeah, and, and that's something... All actors have to have a really tough outer shell because the majority of the auditions that you go to, uh, you're not going to get the role. And Mm. and that's not necessarily because of you or your talent. It it could mean for so many different things. If you went up for a role. Is that uh, what you have to tell yourself? I always wonder that. No. Well, here's here's a good example, right? So if you you auditioned for a role and you thought that you really nailed it, Mm -hmm. uh, you might not get the role just because you're, you're too tall or too short. Uh, and, and the person that they, look. Interesting. right. It, the person that they cast as the lead is six foot one and you're six foot one and they don't like the way that that looks together. So mm. they go with the person who's shorter mm-hmm. it has nothing to do with your ability or they might be like, well, I don't like her hair color and we don't have the budget for a wig department. Oh, interesting. Like little okay. things like that. And, and there's a lot of, you know, more problematic areas to that too. Like you're not as slim as this person mm-hmm. or, or those types of things, which are, you know. Those are more problematic areas of it. But uh, at the same time, it could literally just be like, you know, he's got a beard and I don't I don't see him as the character because Mm -hmm. he's got a beard. Mm. Uh, But in doing technical work, there's no auditioning. Right. Mm -hmm. You don't go in and be like, you know, you send in a resume and it's more like a job. Sure. And so uh, 
you have a lot of people who are like, there's more money in doing this. There's mm -hmm. more steady income. Uh, but then also there's people who just were able to find that the artistry of it suited them more. Mm -hmm. And they like being able to amplify what they're seeing on stage sure. rather than necessarily being on stage. Okay. Uh, but in doing so, you do give up the recognition that you get on stage. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what I wanted to do with this series. I wanted to tell those stories, but I also wanted to give people, your average theater goer, a little bit more context so that when they see a show, they can go away and be like, wow, I really like the costume design and the costume designer did a great job doing X. Did you notice how like, um, or even noticing that they have costumes, right? right? I mean, because when you're watching a show, you're not really focused on that kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, what they're wearing. Or being able to say, like, did you notice uh, the lighting design in this scene, how mm -hmm. effective it was at, you know, portraying this mood or something like that? Yeah. Um, because theater isn't always realism all the time, right? It's not just about lighting what's on stage. And Jimmy, who I wrote about, is a lighting designer. And mm -hmm. he talks about how it's not all about just lighting a stage up and showing you know, the audience, what's happening. Mm -hmm. That's a part of it. Uh, but it's also about enhancing that. Sure. And he describes it as, you know, throwing paint on a canvas, right? That's really what it is. So you're, you're lighting, of course, but then you're also amplifying the mood mm -hmm. uh, or you're amplifying the music that's coming in. Or you're, if, if you decide not to light one half of the stage because you want people to focus on the other half, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're drawing people's eyes to different things. Directing uh, them with light, sure. Right. So there's a lot more that goes into uh, the different areas backstage. And in addition to that, there's way more people who work backstage than actors on stage. So when you go see a show with five people in it, you might be thinking about those five and the director being the six people who put it on mm -hmm. and not thinking about the 25 or 30 people backstage who created the costumes, the set design, did the lighting, ran the boards, did the stage management. All of those things come together to create a production. Mm -hmm. It's not just the people on stage. And now we get to see them. Exactly. Thanks to you. Well, again, I don't want to take all the credit because <clears throat> these people have, have truly wonderful stories. And Only I've, the credit to bring those stories to us. Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Okay, good. So to wrap up today, one last thing that I wanted to talk about is climate change. You yes. had a pretty interesting conversation uh, recently. It was very interesting. Yeah, and with a very interesting person as well. Walk yes. me through that. So her name is uh, Catherine uh, Hayhoe, and she is a climate scientist and communicator, and she's a, you know, a pretty big deal in, in her field. Um, she is now the chief scientist uh, for the Nature Conservancy, and she uh, stepped down from a position that she had at Texas Tech University to take that. So that was in March. But she is, you know, world renowned for her ability to uh, talk about climate change in a way that brings it home to our everyday lives. Right. So even though she's a scientist uh, and, and that happens to be her fields, the atmosphere, um, she, you know, talks about. Uh, making connections between what climate change means to you as a father or to, you know, a mother or somebody who loves to hike or somebody who uh, is active in their church. I mean, she, she finds out what their values are and then connects those with the, the consequences of climate change. 
Yeah, I find that interesting, <clears throat> reframing how you talk about it, because so much of our discourse about climate change is not necessarily based in the science of it, right? It's based in uh, more fear-mongering type sure. things. Sure, or, or based in the science uh, and not believing, and in, in either believing or not believing the science. And as, as she says, uh, when people tell her that they don't believe in climate change, she says that she doesn't either because it's not a religion. Right. Yeah. I find that like in conversations that I have uh, about climate change with people who don't believe in it, mm -hmm. um, I, I feel like they're coming from a place of like, it, it's so big that it's hard to comprehend. Sure. So they land on the side of like, it can't be mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that, that I've specifically heard like, we're just, we're so small compared to the earth. There's no way that we can possibly influence it. Right. We can't mm -hmm. be responsible for climate change because we're just one person. Yeah. But then the way that I fall on it is like, okay, yeah, we're one person, but there's 7 billion of us. Mm -hmm. And I can't comprehend that number either. So I'm going to fall on the side of like, yeah, probably we probably are doing something. Sure. If there's and, so many. Yeah. And so as a scientist, she comes at it from a point of that's a given. And, and so then it's how do we move beyond that to start making some changes in our lives or first of all, to see why we should be making those changes. And that's the connection, right? Between what we value and what we can do and why climate change is important to us. Right. So then uh, you move from there to, you know, some of the changes that you can make. But the whole way that she frames it is interesting to me. And she she was her TED talk on the topic was was very popular. It reached uh, almost uh, 3.9 million viewers. So she she really has a, a down to earth way of connecting you with climate change. And before she took this uh, position as chief scientist at the Nature Conservancy, she used to work with municipalities uh, across and organizations across the country to talk about some of the changes that they could incorporate in order to prepare for climate change. So she would look at circumstances that are happening right then and there, whether it was more droughts or supersized droughts, uh, really heavy rain events that continue year after year, large storm events. And then, you know, maybe it's a cooling center that you have to put up in the community so that people can go to a place where they can be cool. You know, changes like that she used to work with. So this is something that, you know, organizations and governments across the country are actually trying to prepare for. And she helped them with that. Right. Yeah. And I think it's all about that, that reframing idea, right? Mm -hmm. um, you had a great quote in there about cigarette smoke yes, from her yes. as well. Do you have that quote? The quote about cigarette smoke, I can just, you know, paraphrase it, which is uh, basically you have smoked a pack of cigarettes a day, but you don't have emphysema, you don't have lung disease and you're not dead yet. So it's not really true that cigarette smoking is bad for your health, right? Right. So that's kind of the way we are viewing climate change. And she talks about it like that, like people who have, you know, not exercised their entire life. Oh, this is interesting. And it's kind of goes with that. But I had, I had told her that I've read a lot about climate change. And one of the things that um, w was always kind of confusing to me was the, the models seem to conflict. Like, why can't they tell me when this is going to happen? And she said, well, it's kind of like if you don't exercise and you eat really poorly, and the doctor says your lifestyle is going to lead to a heart attack. And you say to him, well, when? 
Right. Tell me when. <laughs> so, I mean, it is, it, it's very much like that, um, where you can understand it better. But the reason why that, that value connection is so important is if we start talking about climate change, then that is the single greatest thing that we can do to affect social change. And she, that's why she wants us to start talking about it in our everyday lives um, whether it's cigarette smoking, because, you know, now it's pretty uncool to smoke cigarettes because we started talking about it. Right. So that's the kind of, uh, that's the kind of force that she wants to take place by us talking about it. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I do appreciate that, th- that she's coming from a place of like, let's just start conversations Yes. rather than like, I feel like people push back when it's like, well, the government wants to take our cars and we can't do this. We can't eat meat. But this is coming from a place of like, okay, let's not think about all of that stuff. Let's just talk and let's, you know, open the dialogue up. Exactly. And, um, we, you know, we should definitely make note that the reason I was talking with her was to, to preview the Door County Coalition's, uh, the Climate Change Coalition of Door County Season of Action. So normally they have a forum that coincides with Earth Day, which is April 22nd. And this year they're doing a season of action. So they have a number of different things. Uh, they have three speakers and on three uh, Wednesday evenings, and Catherine Hayhoe is one of those. So she's kicking it off on April 21. Of course, it's virtual. And so people will be able to tune in and hear for themselves. Her, She's really a very dynamic speaker. Great. Well, I, I encourage people to check out that article and also to tune in for when she is speaking. Uh, Deb, is there anything else this week that people need to do before we wrap up? Uh, no, I don't think so. All right. I think we covered it all. We did it. Thank you so much, Deb, for coming on and chatting with me. And I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Okay. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.